you know, if you're really in tune with your menstrual cycle and know the signs and, you know, it's just a few signs to kind of track every month, then you can really have a deeper understanding into your overall health. So, you know, it's not just for women who aren't trying to get pregnant or want to get pregnant because it can be used either way, you know, as a contraceptive measure or, you know, as a way to actually time intercourse so that you can get pregnant when you're ovulating. But it's also, you know, even if that doesn't apply to you, it's just a really good way to track your overall health. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Medicine Stories, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth. I am your host, Amber Magnolia Hill. This is episode 63. Today, I'm sharing my interview with Dr. Elizabeth Wade. We talk about our periods as our body's fifth vital sign, alongside temperature, heart rate, blood pressure, and respiration. Modern medicine now recognizes that what is happening with our menstrual cycle can tell us a lot about what is going on more deeply with our health, and knowing this really empowers us to be aware of some things that we might otherwise miss. And just to cultivate the body literacy that I would hope for everyone. And we also talk about the fertility awareness method, which is not the same as the rhythm method. And we really get into the nuts and bolts of how to chart your cycle to help you either avoid or optimize your chances for pregnancy. Um, And we get into some of the many health risks of using hormonal birth control. I want to say here at the outset that both Dr. Elizabeth and I recognize how complicated the issue of birth control is and how for some people it is going to be worth it to take on the risks associated with hormonal contraception in order to avoid pregnancy. Um, We are just here to advocate for full awareness of the risks and benefits and to talk about the best alternative. So I have been talking about periods forever in my online life, um, on the podcast, mostly in episode 20 with my first and most important herbal teacher, Cami McBride. So I'm really excited to get back into it and uh, to expand my knowledge so far beyond where it was, thanks to Dr. Elizabeth. There are three Patreon offerings that go along with this episode. So sometimes every now and then there's zero that goes along with an episode, but that's pretty rare. There's usually at least one. This time there's three. One is available to all, to the public, and two are for the patrons at the $2 a month level. So the first of those available to patrons is a bonus audio recording interview between me and Dr. Elizabeth all about why rest is vital for bleeding bodies. And this came about because after the interview, we were emailing and it came up for both of us that we wished we had gone deeper into this topic. So I said, hey, do you want to record a bonus on this? And we ended up talking for a half an hour and it gets deep. It gets good. 
Um, I love this extra interview. We talk about how the cultural messaging around periods and rest is based on male hormonal patterns and can be harmful to bleeding bodies. We talk about instinct, intuition, and pulling inward, how our energetic and emotional core is in our pelvis, and that core is more open and permeable when we're bleeding, like the veil is thinner during menstruation. Uh, When honored, our period can be a time of visioning, cleansing, and resetting. How your uterus is twice as heavy when it's full of blood, and too much activity can pull ligaments and other tissues out of place. We talk about how we risk worsening the trauma, tension, and tightness we hold in the womb space by not resting when our body is asking for it. Teaching our children, both boys and girls, about women's cycles. The feelings that surface when we are menstrual and how they are not crazy or hormonally created out of thin air. They are really our deepest truth that we have suppressed for the rest of the month or maybe even longer. What it means when a culture makes the very thing that gives life taboo. How true liberation comes not from suppressing our cycles, but from living in a way that honors them. The red tent and the ancient practice of menstruation as a time of collective visioning. Honoring and celebrating a girl's first period and teaching fertility awareness to teens as an empowering body literacy practice and practical and ritual uses for menstrual blood, including the practice that has brought some pretty mind-blowing magic into my life. I did not know that we were going to get into that when we started that conversation and was really happy that uh, it went there. So the other offering for patrons are two um, available discounts, two coupon codes for working one-on-one with Dr. Elizabeth. So if you like what you hear today, and I think you will, you might be interested in this. Um, she has an office in Portland, Oregon, but she also sees clients virtually all over the world for health consultations. So there's two consultations and two discounts available. The first is just a general health consultation for whatever is ailing you. Dr. Elizabeth specializes in reproductive health, so anything menstrual cycle related from endometriosis, fibroids, PCOS, amenorrhea, fertility or infertility, thyroid disorders, as well as autoimmune disease, gut health, and environmental medicine. Her approach utilizes plant medicine, homeopathy, and lymphatic drainage, amongst other spiritual and energetic modalities. She's also trained in holistic pelvic care by Tammy Kent. So that is amazing. We kind of um, touched on that in episode 61 with Rochelle Garcia Saliga and just how incredibly amazing pelvic work is, especially for women and especially for mothers. So uh, they're at patreon.com slash medicine stories, which of course is where you'll also find that bonus interview is where you can get a coupon code for $50 off a 90 minute call that would normally be 250. And then the second coupon code is for a fertility awareness chart review consultation. If you decide to practice fertility awareness after listening today which I'm going to start doing um, in about a week when my period ends, I'm going to start charting for the first time and I'm so excited. I, as I say at the end of this interview, just wish someone had taught me this when I was younger. I just wish I had known this when I was a teenager or young woman, how different my life could have been, how much more empowered I would have 
been as a person with a bleeding body. Um, I guess 39 is not too late to start, and I'm really excited to deepen my body awareness in this way. So it's really useful in the first few months of practicing fertility awareness to have someone to bounce questions off of and to look at your chart. So Dr. Elizabeth will be offering patrons of this show chart review consultations at a discounted rate of $50, where they are normally $75. It's about a 30-minute session, and you can find the coupon codes for both of those there. And finally, the public Patreon offering, so you do not need to be a patron, also at patreon.com slash medicine stories is it's a few different things all in one post. So um, Dr. Elizabeth shared a downloadable copy of the exact chart that she uses herself to get you started charting. And then there's also a downloadable research study on fertility awareness method that shows that it's 99.4% effective when used correctly. Um, Hormonal contraceptives are 99.7% effective with perfect use, but with typical use, they're more like 92% effective, at least that's for the pill. Um, Plus, there are some links in that same post to two of Dr. Elizabeth's most important books on the subject, and I could not agree more on how important these books are to read if you are interested in this. Um, and a link to her favorite basal body thermometer, which is very cheap and which you can get online. So those are all there. Patreon.com slash medicine stories. Finally, before we start the interview, I wanted to do something I haven't done in quite a while and read an iTunes review. This is from that Kundalini girl. She says, a must listen. This is a podcast I wasn't looking for and didn't know I needed. Fast forward to a binge fest, and I can't believe I didn't know this rich, nutritive resource existed. Not just for those interested in plant medicine, this is for anyone wanting to live more authentically as a human. The ancestral episodes are profound and memory-jogging. There is magic in this world, and this podcast does a fabulous job of harnessing it and sharing it with everyone. P.S. Supporting this podcast via Patreon is the best money parentheses energy you'll spend monthly the resources are killer and you know you are supporting a family slash team slash community to bring even more interviews musings education and spirit to countless listeners so that was a lot of information and there's a lot more coming your way right now in this beautiful interview i hope it really just inspires you to get to know yourself better and changes your life for the better as it has for mine in the weeks since we recorded it. So here we get into my interview with Dr. Elizabeth Wade. All right. Hi, Dr. Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining me today on Medicine Stories. Thank you so much for having me, Amber. Yep. Um, People have asked me to cover this before, actually. And uh, so I'm excited to do it. And I really like this is something I've always wanted to know, and that I really don't. And like, I, I there's been times in my life, like earlier this week, actually, when I've been like, dang it, I wish I understood this stuff better. You know, I basically I had like a pregnancy freak out earlier this week went to my midwife and she drew blood and I did the blood test. Cause I was like, I can't wait 
until, you know, my missed period. I need to know now if I'm pregnant. And I knew the whole time, like if I knew more about this, and I also think that I know more about my cycle than most women, but there's still so much I don't know and so much about my fertility signals that I don't know. And if I had known that, I might not have had that freak out, you know? So I would like to um, just start by asking you to please tell us how you came to medicine, what what your credentials are, you know, what your practice looks like now, and then what specifically drew you to women's health and then into fertility awareness. Yeah, I'd love to share a little bit about that. So um, I definitely did not have a direct path um, to medicine. I, I had no intention of ever being a doctor when I was younger. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to kind of make you know, a good impact on the world. And it was pretty vague, but I knew I wanted to help. And I was actually very into cultural exchange. Um, I studied abroad and in undergrad, and it completely changed my life and my outlook on the world. So I worked for many years in student exchange um, after my undergraduate degree. And um, in that time, I got really interested in, um, you know, nutrition and um, yoga and started really exploring the idea that I think it was really yoga that brought me to the idea that, you know, health was more than nutrition and exercise. I'd always been a pretty big, um, I guess, uh, advocate for exercise, various types, but yoga really expanded that into, you know, the mental, emotional, physical body element. And I, I was on a yoga retreat one year I went on a solo trip my first one ever and kind of I read this book called the blue zones and um there there's this saying in Okinawa Japan which is one of the blue zones that you know people are supposed that when they're born they're meant to find their ikigai and it's the reason to wake up every morning and I really contemplated that hard on that trip you know I was kind of soul searching at that time I knew I um, wasn't going to be fulfilled forever by student exchange. And I was looking for my next move, you know, like what is the thing that is going to make me happy? My reason to wake up every morning. And I realized it was really health, like holistic health. That's what I was spending every minute of my free time, you know, reading about looking into exploring, you know, outside of my, my day job at the time. Careers in that, um, there was a lot of like and it didn't feel quite right to me. So um, just on an internet search one day, I found naturopathic medicine. I'm from Chicago. And, you know, that word never was part of my vocabulary prior to this experience, finding it online on Google. And I watched a video and I was like, wow, this makes so much sense. And this, this is what I believe is really the answer when it comes to health. And so you know, but it was, you know, it was medical school. And I was like, I've never considered going to medical school would be a very big turn for me. So I kind of closed my computer and went about, you know, my day for the next two days. And I happened to meet a naturopathic doctor two days later, which was just the universe, you know, telling me that I was on the right path. Um, It was the first time I'd ever met a naturopath. And I didn't even know that word before, you know, 48 hours before. So I picked her brain and, you know, started looking at schools and that's how I, um, that process started. And it was just, you know, it was a a hell yes from the first, you know, minute that I found it. Sorry to swear. Um, I just, 
I just knew, you know, that's what I was supposed to do. And so I, I thought about it, you know, I, I visited a lot of schools and I did my prereqs slowly because I had to do all the pre-med courses. Um, so I did them, you know, over a year, I guess it wasn't slowly, it was an accelerated uh, prerequisite program, but, you know, I took a full year to really do that work and, and make sure it was the right choice and then ended up in Portland for medical school and, that's really how that started. Um, so it was, it was kind of a very indirect path, but um, really, really purposeful. And I know so fully that this is what I meant to do. And my own personal health experience in school, my first year of school, I actually got pregnant on hormonal birth control and um, had an ectopic pregnancy, which is when mm. um, the egg you know, can implant in somewhere other than the uterus. In my case, it was my fallopian tube. And that really was a catalyst for me to find another option. Because that's like a life-threatening situation. (laughs) Yes. And I was very close to dying. I had emergency surgery. I had already had my tube ruptured and was bleeding internally. And it was super scary. And um, yeah, I, you know, the doctor who did my surgery, you know, she was very kind in a lot of ways, but very insistent that I get on the IUD right after that happened. And I felt like there was so much trauma, you know, that just happened to my room. And I was having a really hard time, you know, thinking about implanting a device into uh, mm-hmm. my body right after that happened. And and I knew that the risk, you know, there was a higher risk for people with IUDs for ectopic pregnancy. So I was like, why would I do this? And it just didn't feel right. And she really shamed me. She was just like, you know, clearly you're not responsible enough to take the pill. So this is your only option if you don't want to get pregnant. And that felt terrible. And um, and so I, you know, I didn't do it. Thankfully, I listened to my gut. But I ended up finding fertility awareness through that and um, have been on a big journey ever since that day to really, you know, I've learned it myself. It's completely changed my life. And I actually have hosted trainings for all the medical students at my school every year since that first year that this happened to me. And I brought a fertility awareness educator to NUNM, which is where I went to school. And she would teach a weekend course and teach anyone who wanted to learn about this method. So it was, you know, something that I became really quickly passionate about getting the word out. And now that you know, I'm in my professional career, it continues to be a cornerstone piece of my practice. So. Wow. Yeah. So as a naturopathic doctor, you go through full medical school and then there's what, like an emphasis on what plant healing or. Yeah, we learn. So it's, it's the same, you know, we have to learn all the same basic sciences as an MD would learn. Um, We do a lot more human physiology, just learning about how the body works um, we do learn pharmacology and I am, you know, licensed to prescribe in Oregon where I live pharmaceuticals if I want, even though they're not a part of my practice. Um, so we do learn pharmacology, but not nearly as much um, and as an MD would do. And then we learn, you know, botanical medicine. We learn homeopathy. Um, you know, we learn a lot more nutrition. You know, we have a lot of nutrition courses. So we learn, you know, they, they do a lot of comparing, you know, the different degrees, a chiropractor, a naturopath, and a medical doctor. And so, you know, we learn almost the same as medical doctors do, just slightly less pharmacology and then 
a lot more. They've actually showed that we do like an extra year of training than medical school doctors and the number of credits that we have to do in a four-year period. Wow. Um, it's like five, five years and four years because of all the extra stuff. <clears throat> so it's pretty rigorous. It was, it was, um, it was very hard, <laughs> but um, especially not having a medical background, it was very challenging, but I, you know, I love it. I really believe in this medicine and, you know, I believe that, like our, our big thing is root cause healing, you know, getting to the root of what is going on and trying not to mask symptoms. And I think that's really important. So, yeah, great. Thank you for answering that. I've wondered, I've seen people argue online about what kind of training naturopaths have. And I've even seen people call themselves naturopaths. And then when I ask, they're like, oh, I just like, you know, use herbal remedies and prescribe or, and, yeah. um, and I'm like, but you didn't have the training. And like, no. And I was like, you can't call yourself that then. <laughs> That's yeah, like a real term. Yeah, they can't. They can call themselves a naturopath. They just can't call themselves a naturopathic doctor. Mm. So it is. It is quite ambiguous, and you do have to really be careful if you're seeking out. You know, a natural. If you want a naturopathic doctor, you should definitely check their bio and make sure they went to one of the six accredited schools. Um, you know, make sure they have a license to practice because they can actually call themselves a naturopath. The, that term isn't regulated like you know mm. medical doctors are okay yeah. thank you um yeah. I love that story I love that you had never considered medical school before but you just felt <laughs> the call and you followed it I love those kind of stories and you know yeah I'm, I talk about that a lot on this show like just listening to your heart and following the call and for me it's um it's never done me wrong to do that <laughs> So yeah, <laughs> let's start by talking so about, yeah, the pill and hormonal birth control. Um, millions, millions of women are on hormonal birth control. Many, many of them aren't even doing it for birth control purposes, but to manage symptoms. And, you know, it's something that doctors just prescribe, like any, any female complaint they hear, they're like, here's a prescription for hormonal birth control. Um, this will suppress your symptoms, not this is going to help the root cause. So let's just start by going over, because so many women are unaware of how truly deep and long lasting the side effects of hormonal birth control are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it is a very complicated subject and, you know, I always, I like, I like women to be really informed, which is a big part of why, you know, talking about fertility awareness is so important to me because I, I know I personally was not given a choice, you know, when I became sexually active, it was like, here, you take the pill, that's what you do. And, you know, no risks were ever um, discussed with me. And I, I know that that's very common based on the you know, my friends, family and patients. So yeah, the, the pill, you know, just to give you a little bit of history, it was first approved, you know, in the 1960s. And um, it's really interesting that, you know, one of the things that I learned recently, you know, in the last couple of years was that when they were first doing testing um, on women for the pill, the women who were taking the pill were convinced that they were pregnant because they weren't getting their periods. And they were really sad and grieving when they realized they actually weren't pregnant. Um, and, and so in order to convince women to take a medication every day, um, when they weren't sick and to take a medication that actually stopped them from ovulating, they realized that they had to present, you know, the pill in a way that mimicked women's natural cycles. So they specifically then redesigned the pill to mimic a 28 day 
cycle, like, you know, many women, you know, who cycle have 28 day periods. So they designed it that way. And to have a withdrawal beat, a withdrawal bleed, which is not a real period, you know, when you're taking the placebo pills or sugar pills, you know, for that week, it's a withdrawal bleed. It's not actually a menstrual period. So they just put that in there to, you know, to make women believe that they were still having a normal cycle for compliance reasons. So it's just, that's really, yeah. Well, and it was like super high dose. Was it estrogen at first? Like they were like messing women up when the pill first came out. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. There was like seven times up to seven times the amount of estrogen and almost up to a hundred times the amount of synthetic progestins in the first round of the pill. So yeah, it was very, it was much stronger um, than it is today, but yeah, the fake, the fake bleed really got me, you know, if I, I went my whole life, you know, I, I was on the pill for 10 years and I thought I was getting a period every month. I did not realize I wasn't. So, um, yeah, I think that is a little bit very misleading. And, um, you know, I wish that there was more education around that with women. Yeah. Well, in her book, Beyond the Pill, Dr. Jolene Brighton talks about too, just speaking of like the lack of education that doctors tell women, you know, it basically tricks your body into thinking you're pregnant. And she points out that like your body is not that dumb. Yeah. That it's much more complex than that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the ways that it works, you know, is that it interferes with ovulation. So, you know, there's a a brain ovarian connection and it basically shuts down that communication between your brain and your ovaries so that you don't ovulate. And then it interferes with implantation. So a fertilized egg, you know, can't implant in the uterus because uh, the uterus endometrial lining is too thin when you're on hormonal birth control for implantation to occur. And then it also changes your cervical mucus um, so that it actually like creates like a plug so that sperm can't, you know, get into the fallopian tubes and cervical canal. Um, so that's, you know, the ways that birth control works. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of different types now. There's combined oral contraceptives being estrogen, synthetic estrogen and progesterone together. And then there's progesterone, progesterone only, which is synthetic progestin. It's not the same thing as natural progesterone. And then, you know, there's the IUD and there's various types of IUDs. Some have hormones, some one doesn't. Um, and sometimes women, you know, I have many patients on the Mirena IUD that seems to be the most popular choice right now. Is that the um, copper that I see one? Pre- <clears throat> the Mirena IUD is not the copper one. The copper one doesn't have any hormones. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that one, you know, can be nice for women because they're not getting hormones. But I, I see a lot of women have a lot of pain, you know, the downside to that. Yeah. And how... It, it's very, I'm sorry. How is the copper one if it's not hormonal preventing pregnancy? The copper is actually like, it's like a spermicide. Um, The the copper actually destroys the sperm. It can't get past the copper. So, yeah. So, but it causes a lot of inflammation, you know, where the IUD is implanted in the body. And so women experience, you know, I see oftentimes women have a lot of issues with IUDs, whether they're hormonal or not. Um, much more than they report, you know, in the stats, what I've seen clinically. So yeah, yeah, 
And some women, you know, do great with them. That's obviously not all women. Right. I was going to ask. I've heard horror stories. Mm -hmm. And then I also have friends who are like, it's been absolutely fine. So it just seems like such an individual thing for the IUD. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And so some women on the Mirena, that's a progesterone only um, type of hormonal birth control. And some women still ovulate and some don't. So you know, there's mm. benefits to having regular ovulation, um, right. you know, for the, f- the female body, which if you're suppressing ovulation, you know, you're, you're not doing your body the biggest service, you know, in the long run, long term for certain aspects of your health, specifically with like osteoporosis um, is a big one. <clears throat> because yeah, regular ovulation, you know, when you have sufficient progesterone and estrogen, you know, that is really connected to our optimal bone density in women. So if you're not ovulating um, or you have, you know, any type of ovulatory disturbance, then you could have deficient progesterone and that puts you at an increased risk for osteoporosis. Mm. And um, something else I learned in Dr. Brighton's book, this is a quote, she says, from progesterone to cortisol to thyroid hormone, there isn't a hormone that the pill does not disrupt. So this is really like a full yeah. body dysregulation. Oh yeah, it is. The side effect list is so long. I mean, all you have to do is pull up, you know, any one of the number of birth control pills out there and look at their, you know, on drugs.com, like the adverse events associated with them. I mean, the list is so long. So, you know, and, and it's, it's often downplayed, right? Because a lot of drugs have really super long lists of adverse events, but there's quite a few very, very common um, side effects, you know, with, with hormonal birth control that are not rare um, and they're not discussed. What are the most common ones? Yeah. So, I mean, the one I think most people are aware of is, you know, the increased risk of blood clots um, that could then cause like a stroke and that risk goes up you know, if women are smoking heavy smokers or after the age of 35, but, you know, there, and in certain birth controls, the risk is higher. You know, one of the ones that has had a lot of taking a lot of heat is Yaz, the brand Yaz and Yasmin. Um, they've had a lot of heat over the years for having increased risk for um, blood clots and, and related um, complications from that. So that is like the number one risk with birth control because that can cause death. So that's severe. And, um, and then, you know, some of the other really common ones that I know aren't talked about are, you know, loss of libido and, um, pain with intercourse and, um, a lot of changes with mood. So anxiety, depression, you know, being associated with that. And then, you know, there's so many, we can kind of get into as much detail as you want with any of these, if you have questions, but, um, you know, the, the pill actually sh- changes the anatomy in your, in, in your pelvic area. So you're, they've actually shown that your clitoris shrinks, hormonal contraceptives shrink your clitoris and decreases the thickness of your labia. Um, and so it actually, you're not allowed to feel, you know, then a full spectrum of pleasure with intercourse and women actually because of that change will experience pain with intercourse. 
And I know I had this and I went to so many doctors, you know, when I was on the pill, I had pain with intercourse and I went to so many doctors and I was like, why is this happening? And, you know, they did so many pelvic exams and they kept telling me I'm fine. I'm fine. It was never brought up that that could have been associated with the pill. And I believe they didn't know, you know, I don't think the doctors were lying. I just don't think that they're even aware that, you know, they're trained to be like, this is safe. You know, this is safe. Like, this is what you do. So yeah, that that's a big one. Oh that my hit gosh! Me. Yeah, that's horrifying. <laughs> I know, <laughs> and it takes a long time for it. Like, it can you know the clitoral volume. Um, it, there, there can be a twenty percent decrease in clitoral volume and orgasms associated with um, hormonal contraceptive use. So that's a big, you know, that's a big percentage. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yeah, there there is so much to talk about. Um, <laughs> I have so many questions. I before we get yeah. into, I want to talk about um, the period as the fifth vital sign. But yeah. this is bringing up for me. So the only form of hormonal birth control I was ever on is when I was seventeen and having sex with my boyfriend. My mom took me in, and I got one depo Provera shot, um, mm. and it messed me up. It messed. I was hypothyroid. Within a few months, um, and having yeah. like really severe hypothyroid um, symptoms, you know, it took us a while to figure out mm-hmm. what it was. Also, and I never got another one. I never did any other form of hormonal birth control. And I've I've heard that that's kind of out of fashion now. But like, what what is that? Is that just a really concentrated version of the pill because it's a once every three months shot? Yeah, it is. It's it's. It's my least favorite for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it completely stops, you know, you from cycling. So mm-hmm. they actually, um, they actually use that for sex offenders. They will give, they will give the double shot to sex offenders as a form of like chemical castration for them. Oh my gosh. Um, to men. Yeah. <laughs> yes. To men. Uh-huh. Um, wow. Yeah. So oh my god! I'm 17. You know, <laughs> here this is this is gonna be so easy for you. I know, and and there's a big risk with mental illness, like you know, um, depression and anxiety <gasps> with the risk for oh that. So it's that will that yeah, also happen? Suicide goes up. Mm-hmm. Yes, I felt actually kind of crazy for a while and didn't know how to talk yeah. about it or tell anyone what was going on. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. I'm just like, I'm, I'm smiling right now, actually, because you just made a huge mystery in my life make sense. To, I've always been like, what happened to me senior year? I know. Wow. I know. Okay, I love, you. I love that you, you knew not to do it. You know, I wish I would have been more informed. I, I don't know, you know, the way I was raised, I didn't really question. I mean, I've always questioned a lot of things. I shouldn't say that's not true, but with that, it was, you know, with that particular thing, I didn't question it. I just did it. And I wish I could go back because I have made so many connections now with my health, you know, um, just because there's, there's long-term effects with using the pill, you know, that don't just go away right after you get off or even up to two years or sometimes longer It affecting your hormones and thyroid and gut. So, you know, there's a lot of implications when you're on it long-term and, and the, the adverse effects build at the longer that you're on it. So it's so great that you got off and were able to really intuitively know that wasn't the right choice for you, but yeah. I well, 
have that compass at that time. I have to, um, I'm crying now because it was really my mom who was like, this is not okay. You know, I don't know what happened to you, but it's not okay. And we're going to figure it out and like, not going to do that again. And she was the one who years later, you know, in kind of the early days of the internet, like late nineties, early two thousand, she called me one day and she was like, I think the hypothyroidism was from the depot. You know, we hadn't made that direct connection at the time. We just knew I don't need to do that again. So really just, um, you know, she passed away four years ago now, but I'm so grateful to her for being tuned in and caring. That's so wonderful. Yeah. I know that is, I'm, yeah, I've definitely heard you talk about her on previous episodes and she just sounds so amazing. And that is so wonderful that she was able to really advocate for you in that way. Um, I wish, you know, I wish it's just unfortunate, you know, cause I know my mom would have too, if she knew, you yeah. know, but she just, she, she women aren't aware. Like no. I didn't, I was 30 years old when I went to med, I started medical school and it wasn't until I had that, you know, really crisis experience that I woke up to all of this. And I don't know that I would have had I not had that experience. So, you know, right. silver lining, but um, we're just not, you know, even in naturopathic medical school, they don't, they don't advocate for fertility awareness. You know, they talk about how it's an option, but they don't push it. And in clinic, I actually wasn't even allowed to offer it to patients. Wow. So. Wow. So crazy. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, people don't know, women don't know. And that's why we're here having this conversation. That's why you do what you do. And I'm really grateful. And we are going to get into like the nuts and bolts of the fertility awareness method. Um, but first let's talk about the period as the fifth vital sign and what that means and just the amazing insight into our health that, um, our menstrual cycle gives us when we are not disrupting it. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the menstrual cycle is now being called the fifth vital sign by really big organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Um, ACOG is that acronym. And they're pretty much running the show when it comes to all things menstrual cycle related in terms of medical procedures. So for um, better and for worse. Know, yeah, for better <laughs> and for worse. But, you know, vital signs, some people might know what those are. So that's like your blood pressure and your heart rate and respiratory rate and temperature. Those are, you know, the four things that usually if you go into any doctor's office, they take, Um, you know, and they're supposed to be a means of tracking your overall health. And so for women, they're actually saying that your menstrual cycle is the fifth one because it changes based on what is happening in your life. Um, you know, stress and environment, travel, illness, um, drugs, medications, um, you know, thyroid issues, you know, any type of issue affecting your period, you know, it, it's all it all shows up there. So it's a really great insight, you know, if you're really in tune with your menstrual cycle and know the signs, and you know, it's just a few signs to kind of track every month, then you can really have a deeper understanding into your overall health. So, you know, it's not just for women who aren't trying to get pregnant or want to get pregnant because it can be used either way, you know, as a contraceptive measure or, you know, as a way to actually time intercourse so that you can get pregnant when you're ovulating. But it's also, you know, even if that doesn't apply to you, it's just a really good way to track your overall health. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for sure, the period can be a pain, of course, you know, um, can disrupt Mm -hmm. things and, but it's so 
precious. It's so sacred and it gives us so much information about ourselves. And I really feel grateful for the teachers who brought that perspective to me when I was in my 20s. Um, So let's, you know, now that we are honoring the menstrual cycle and understanding how important it is. um, Yeah, let's just get into, you know, if you want to do do you want to do an overview of the? Let's talk first about what fertility awareness method is not, because I think there's a lot of um, misconceptions about this. Yeah. Um, so the biggest, you know, thing I like to differentiate is that it's not um, the rhythm method. So the rhythm method is based on a calendar month. You know, they assume that every woman you know, more or less as a 28 day cycle. And so they're fertile, you know, somewhere smack in the middle, 13, you know, days 11 and maybe 18 or something. They'll block off, you know, five to eight days. Yeah, and I, I think I read recently that only about 15% of women have a 28 day cycle. It's the average, oh, yeah. it's, but it's not. It's, right. Yeah, yeah. It's not, you know, your cycle can be anywhere from, I think 26 days to 35 days. Um, and be totally normal. It's just, it's just more if your cycle is varying in greater than eight days in length regularly. Um, so say you're having like a 25 day cycle and then you're having a 35 day cycle one month and then you're having a 42 day cycle the next month, you know, that would be reason to maybe call it abnormal, but it can vary, you know, it can be 26 days, one month and 32 days, one month and 28 days, one month. And that's all normal. So that's a big, I think, misconception to a lot of things women don't understand, you know, what actually constitutes an irregular cycle and does not have to be 28 days to be healthy. You're absolutely right. Um, But the rhythm method kind of uses that calendar approach where, you know, and some women might take, you know, what is my average length? And then they just block off a time assuming they're ovulating mid cycle, but that doesn't always happen because a lot of women are estrogen dominant and estrogen is the primary hormone in the first half of our cycle. And so that would push ovulation way later um, in your cycle. If you have too much estrogen, then you typically don't ovulate till much later in your cycle and oftentimes have a progesterone deficiency then as well, which is the dominant hormone in the second half of the cycle. So you can't, that's not a super reliable method. Um, and so a lot of women, and I think, you know, where the distrust and fertility awareness comes is, is that, you know, they think that it's all the same thing. Um, and there's a lot of terminology and fertility awareness. Um, like the, the woman who taught me fertility awareness, um, I'm going to give her a little shout out because she's amazing. Her name is Sarah Bly and she's in Ashland, Oregon. Um, you know, there's a lot of terms that she kind of clarified to get nitty gritty where fertility awareness is just like a non-religious based healthcare model for body literacy. So it's just having a general, um, you know, understanding body literacy, like you understand your body and then fertility awareness method frequently, you know, FAM, F-A-M, you might see that all over the internet, um, is using one of the combined charting practices for self-care. So natural family planning also falls under fertility awareness method because natural family planning is religious related. It's associated with the Catholic church, but they do use, you know, cervical mucus tracking and basal body, um, temperature charting as their mechanisms, which is essentially the same thing as what I call fertility awareness. Um, it's just not, it's a non-religious way of saying it. 
Um, so that's a little bit of terminology that can be kind of helpful. And then fertility awareness base, base methods, FABM, is just like a combination of like, this is like inclusive of like all the types. So, so I think there's just a lot of, you know, I've heard, I've had people tell me like, oh, I got pregnant using this method, but it's really not the method. They didn't get pregnant from using the method. They got pregnant because they used the method incorrectly. Um, because you have to be pretty accurate with, you know, you have to, you have to take your temperatures every day at the same, roughly the same time every morning. You, know, you have to be really aware that certain things can change your body temperature. So if you drink a lot, you know, alcohol is thermogenic. It can raise your body temperature. If you're sick, you know, that can raise your body temperature. So you, there is kind of like a learning curve of learning the, the practice and how to do this in the beginning. But, you know, if you practice it every day, if you check your cervical mucus at least three times a day and take your temperature every morning, um, you know, roughly at the same time of day, that's considered perfect use. And that is 99.4% effective. So it's as effective as an IUD or, you know, any other form of birth control. It's just a matter of, are you actually doing that every day? You know? Wow. So when um, practiced correctly, it's mm -hmm. how effective? 99.4. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I've yeah. gotten pregnant through a condom twice. Um, so, you know, they say condoms are 99% yeah. effective and I'm like, I don't know about yeah. that. Um, yeah. <laughs> this, this seems yeah. more effective than that for sure. Um, yeah. so how about, I mean, if, if you have a different way that you like to present this, then go ahead. But I'm thinking maybe, mm -hmm. um, a brief overview of the menstrual cycle and then getting like deep into the practice and, you know, the cervical fluid checking and the basal body temperature and what exactly that looks like. Sure. Yeah. So um, the first day, I really love to clar clarify this, the first day of your period or first day of your cycle is the first day of an actual full bleed. So it's not, you know, if you're a spotter, you spot before your period begins, it's not spotting days. It's the first day of a full bleed. Um, <clears throat> so that's day one of your cycle. And at that point, your body starts making estrogen and, or, you know, you're actually, you're shedding your, your endometrial lining. So all your hormones are kind of dropping at, at that first day. Um, and, and then you, but you start producing after that estrogen and um, a hormone called follicle stimulating hormone. And that's just re responsible for exactly how it sounds like developing your follicles, which are inside your egg. And those, one of them will become the mature primary oocyte, which will be ovulated and released from the egg. Um, and so those two hormones will build up. And um, once, you know, you have a sufficient amount of estrogen, that triggers another hormone called luteinizing hormone. And that hormone is actually what's being detected on ovulation predictor kits. So a lot of people, when they're trying to get pregnant, will use home, um, they're called OPKs, ovulation predictor kits, and they they will pee on them like a home pregnancy test and it will tell them like, you know, when they can be expecting to ovulate so that they can time intercourse. So that's actually looking and detecting for LH because you just have a single surge of LH luteinizing hormone when your estrogen is peaking. Um, so the peak of estrogen will actually stimulate that LH and that's what's, um, you know, 20, I usually say 12 to 36 out 36 hours. So roughly 24 hours after you get a positive um, LH predictor kit stick. You know, if you were to do that at home, that's when you would ovulate. So right after that hormone surges, ovulation occurs. 
and then estrogen drops and progesterone takes over as the primary um, hormone. And so estrogen, you know, in the first half of your cycle, that's called, you know, when you're building up estrogen, that's called the follicular phase um, because your follicles are developing. Um, and, you know, that's really a time when, you know, um, your endometrial lining is is building up and thickening. And then progesterone, once that takes over, it's kind of like um, smoothing everything out. You know, if it was like a brick and mortar, it'd be like the mortar. Um, and you know, progesterone is a very different type of hormone. It makes you feel differently. Um, most more women are usually more tired in the second half, you know, after they ovulate. And that's because progesterone, you know, will have that effect on the body. It also is what's considered a thermogenic hormone, <clears throat> which means it actually increases your body temperature. So that's why after you ovulate, if you do temperature tracking, you'll see a raise, a rise in your temperature. Um, because the increase in progesterone causes your temperature to rise. So it's the only actually way taking daily temperatures and you you need to use a basal body thermometer because um, it tracks to like two decimal points. So it's a little bit more specific. And, um, And that's the only way to confirm that you're ovulating truly because if you're taking home, if you're using the ovulation predictor kits at home to track LH, that's not confirming that you ovulated. That's only confirming when you've had a peak in LH. And so a common condition that women struggle with is PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome. And it's very common for women with PCOS to have multiple LH surges. So it's not a reliable predictor of ovulation. You know, it can be, but it's not for all women. Um, So really the only way to confirm that you've ovulated is to track your temperature and to confirm that sustained temperature raise or to get daily ultrasounds, which nobody does. So, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And then I learned recently too that what um, like spurs your period to start is that all hormone levels just plummet. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. At the very beginning, all your hormone levels are dropping. So, um, you know, if the if the egg doesn't get um, fertilized and implanted, you know, then you have the shedding of that neutral lining and, and all the hormone levels just drop exactly as you said. Mm-hmm. It's such a complex dance. Like I was reading about this um, a couple of days ago in Taking Charge of Your Fertility and it just left me with such a sense of awe that this system evolved, you know, over eons. I know. It's so complex and beautiful and functional. It is. It is. And I really, I am in love, like, with the female menstrual cycle. I mean, I, I know... Some people probably, you know, from home who know me from, you know, pre-medical school probably are like, wow, she really loves talking about the menstrual cycle because <laughs> I talk about it all the time. But I just feel it's so beautiful. And I, you know, I feel like women are in this way, I feel like we're conditioned, you know, to go our whole lives kind of trying to move away from this part of us that's so natural and so important to me that I feel now like in being a woman and really embracing my womanhood and feminine energy is really embracing my cycle. And I feel, I, I feel like, you know, being put on the pill or something that numbs out that, you know, it completely changes. So you no longer have, you know, I, I always describe it as like, we go through these, like this big wave of hormones where, 
you know, they start really low and then they build, they build, they build, ovulation happens, you know, estrogen comes down, there's a peak, but then progesterone goes up. So it's like this, you know, this big kind of wave that we go through in the month, whereas men, their hormones, you know, rise and fall every day. It's like a little ripple. And when we're on synthetic hormones, you know, it's designed to make us feel that that's what it does to our hormones. It makes them just ripple every day, the same amount every day of hormones. And that's not how we're designed to be. And, you know, it, it's been such an empowering thing for me to discover fertility awareness, because I've, you know, I'm no longer, I remember for the first, you know, several months, I want to say like six months, I would have this like alarm go off in my head, like, did I forget to take my pill? And, you know, I was so conditioned, it was 10 years of taking the pill that, you know, I would think about that every day. And I was and then I remember, wait, no, like, there's nothing I need to do to protect myself from getting pregnant, like other than myself, like I am now my own barrier, like I am in control, I'm not relying on something else. And it really taught me how to embrace, you know, the the changes that go with how I feel throughout the month and how to communicate that to my partner. Like, look, I don't want to be shamed, you know, for feeling moody before my period. Mm -hmm. Like, please, please don't be like, oh, you must be PMSing. Mm -hmm. You know, I've become really sensitive to that. Like, this is a normal, natural thing. I'm not supposed to be happy and productive right now. Like, I'm supposed to be resting, you know, and you need to honor that because that's like part of my design. And so it's, it's been a really empowering thing for me to learn. And I love empowering my patients for the same reason. Yeah, yeah, I feel really strongly about that, too. Like, I have very strong boundaries around not being, um, yeah, shamed for being a woman and not feeling super great today because of my period. You know, I, oh, it angers me so much to think about how that's used against women. Um, Mm -hmm. not only like within the family, but culturally, like polit, like male politicians will say that about female politicians, like it's her time of the month or whatever. It's, Right. Um, just it's a horrible. really, yeah, severe and disgusting form of misogyny. And, you know, one really basic way to look at the, the cycle, too, for me is just cycles of creativity and rest, cycles of creativity and rest. And like that you are right. numbing those out when you're not allowing your cycle to be what it is. Um, yeah. So. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> I'm I'm glad we're talking about this. Um, let's get deeper because so I've known about this like for decades, but it always felt um, too hard to learn, I guess. I mean, that sounds so silly now that I bring it like fully into the light of consciousness, but please explain more about the basal body temperature, how that works. And, um, you know, at the end, we'll provide some resources for people too, because I'm sure you know, they're going to need to like, look at something visually to learn this as well. Um, and cervical fluid. What, what's that all about? Yeah. So the, yeah, so those are the two key tracking methods of fertility awareness. So if you're going to practice, choose to practice this method, what I refer to as fertility awareness, um, it's, you know, it also can be referred to as a symptothermal method. Um, and it's the same thing. So, um, just for namesake purposes, just wanted to throw that out there. But <clears throat> cervical mucus um, is the primary one. So your cervical mucus is amazing. And it changes based on where you are in your cycle. So usually most women don't experience much cervical fluid, usually none when they're menstruating. 
And then um, it'll start either right after a menstruation or a few, you know, five, five days after, usually five to seven days after. And so before you get up for ovulation, your cervical mucus will start changing. It usually begins thick um, and white like lotion. And then it will progressively turn to more clear and watery. Um, and then eventually it'll be like egg whites. And so um, I, I liked when Sarah Bly taught me fertility awareness, you know, she actually brought in little like demos, but there's a really great app called Fertility Charting. They get censored by Instagram all the time, but they post pictures of cervical mucus all the time on their account. And it's great because it can give you a visual of what it looks like um, when you're fertile. But when you're fertile, it really looks like um, stringy. Um, it's It'll thread from one finger to the other um, and it'll look like egg whites. So it'll just be clear. Um, Does thread you know, mean like it won't break if you... Yeah, it'll thread. So you you check your cervical mucus. But anytime you're going, you know, I recommend women anytime they're going to the bathroom to urinate to check. But um, in order to like the the studies that have been done on this method that show that it's ninety nine point four percent effective, they say you have to check at least three times during the day. Um, but when you're learning it, I recommend just checking, you know, every time you go to urinate and that involves just like observing what you see on your underwear and, you know, after either before or after urinating, you can use your hand to swipe and, um, see what you feel because some women make a lot and some women don't make a lot. So some women might just see it, you know, they might even feel it when they're wiping with toilet paper. Um, <clears throat> you know, it'll feel slick or wet, um, and um, some people will see um, the, you know, this kind of uh, egg white um, cervical mucus on their underwear. And then some won't. But then I'm like, you know, you need to check with your hand at that case because you might just not be making a lot. And it, it decreases by age. So when we're younger, we make a lot more cervical mucus. And then once we're in our 30s, um, we start to make less. Um, usually, you know, yeah, overall quantity less and the number of days that we'll see fertile cervical mucus will be less. So it could be, you know, up to seven days of fertile cervical mucus, five to seven days when you're like 18 to, you know, 25. And then after 25, it starts decreasing. And when you're in your 30s, it's usually only like three days. Mm, um, so that's like the fluid that is going to help the sperm get up there. Is that right? Exactly. Cervical mucus is like super sperm food it um it actually will feed the sperm like it's the nutrients that it contains require them to like they need it to stay alive it there's all these different types um a book a resource that i really love is called the fifth vital sign that's actually a book by lisa hendrickson jack and i find it to be much more digestible than taking charge of your fertility it's also mm -hmm. more recent um it just came out in the last two years so mm -hmm. the uh, research is really up to date and um she explains you know a lot of this stuff but you know she goes into fertility when it's the end of her book and um she talks about all the different kind of cervical mucus and it's fascinating like there's an s type which is present during your fertile um period when you're really fertile days it actually makes these little like s-shaped spindles that help the sperm swim up um and, you know, they're like little highways for the sperm. So they facilitate, you know, so much of the, it's a, like you said, it's a highly complex system, you know, it's yeah, designed so specifically. Amazing. 
Yeah. And um, <laughs> to reproduce and actually, the species. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, they actually also are like a little army to prevent defective sperm from getting into your cervical canal as well. So they have a lot of um, really cool properties to them that are just, I, I find to be so fascinating. And it changes the pH of the sperm to make it a hospitable environment for the sperm. So usually our vaginas are so acidic that the sperm can't survive. Um, so if you don't have fertile cervical mucus, if you don't have cervical mucus, period, the sperm cannot live. They will not get past your cerv- their, your cervix. They The environment, the pH is too acidic. They will die within 24 hours. They will not make it anywhere near your egg. Um, but with cervical mucus, you are fertile, and the cervical mucus can actually keep the sperm alive for up to five days. Okay, so that and, speaks to a question that I really wanted to ask you. Um, yeah. Because so the cervical fluid checking and the basal body temperature, those both tell you you are ovulating right now, right? Or like you are fertile right now. The cervical mucus tells you you're fertile, and the basal body temperature confirms that you ovulated. That you ovulated. Okay. So then there's this thing that the sperm can live for five days. And a midwife friend just told me sometimes it can be seven, which I had never heard before. I've always heard five. So um, do you, if, is that true? (laughs) Because that's why I freaked out about maybe being pregnant. I was like, oh my God, it can be seven days. Yeah, the number varies based on who you hit from. The most consistent number I see is that is six days is usually the amount of days a woman is fertile. Mm-hmm. But it all depends, you know, on the amount of cervical mucus you're producing. So if you're younger or if you just have really robust, healthy cervical mucus, then you know if you're having cervical mucus for seven days, I would say that yeah, you're for you're fertile for seven days because anytime you see for cervical mucus, not even the fertile type, anytime you see cervical mucus period you're considered fertile okay Um, but as far as how long sperm can live so let's say um let's just say that i get really strong signals on the 12th of the month that i've ovulated that i'm fertile Mm -hmm. and we had sex on the sixth of the month um unprotected sex should i i shouldn't be freaking out about that even though the sperm theoretically can live because the the vagina was so acidic on the sixth because there was no Mm -hmm. mucus yeah the sperm can only live for five days. Right. Okay. Well, let's say it was so, the seventh or even the eighth then. Like if there wasn't um, good cervical fluid present, then it's very unlikely that the sperm survived until I ovulated four or five days later. Right. Or whatever. Without, yeah. Without cervical mucus, then the sperm can only live 24 hours. Okay. This, the cervical mucus is what can keep them alive for up to five days. Does okay. that make sense? Yes. And um, let's be clear yeah. again that you, there are various kinds of cervical mucus and we are talking about this like egg white kind. We are, but um, even like when you first start noticing cervical mucus, the white lotion type, that is still considered a fertile day. Mm-hmm. Um, so most women will see cervical mucus for the average is like five days, but you know, I know me personally, I only have it for like two or three days, you know, I'm older. And, and so, you know, I'm in well into my 30s. So that is, um, yeah, it's really dependent on the person, right? So I would say that seven days would be more for someone who is having cervical mucus for seven days straight. But even then, it depends on when intercourse happened, because, you know, they could have intercourse, 
the first day they had cervical mucus and that sperm could live for five days. And then if they had intercourse two days later, you know, uh, that next set of sperm could live for another five days. So that could prolong the period of fertility. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So see, if I had just Mm -hmm. known that I wouldn't have freaked out about being pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was, I love to think about that too, because it's like, think about how many women get the morning after pill without, Mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of women don't even realize that they only ovulate once a month and that they're only fertile for six days out of the month. And so, you know, there's so many women who get the morning after pill because they're scared, which is reasonable. But if they understood their cycle and where if they knew where they were in their cycle, then maybe they would know, oh, there's no way, you know, that I could be pregnant because I've already ovulated. Because once you ovulate, the egg can only survive for 12 to 24 hours. So, you know, it, you, once you've ovulated, Hmm. you know, there's only 24 hours where you can get pregnant after that. Yes. That's an important piece. So yeah, we can stop ourselves from freaking out and overreacting by having this like basic knowledge. And um, another quote that I have written down here from Dr. Brighton from her book, Beyond the Pill is, doesn't it seem silly to suppress your hormones endlessly when you're only fertile about six days a month? Exactly. Um, so let's talk about the basal body temperature and how we check that. Yeah. So the basal body temperature, like I said, you want to get a basal body thermometer. You don't need a fancy one. There's a lot of fancy ones on the market. Um, I would steer away from anyone that predicts when you're going to ovulate or are using any app that predicts when you're going to ovulate, because that's just like the weather prediction. It's sometimes mostly accurate, but not a hundred percent. So you should, and things can throw off your cycle. So even if you have really regular 28 day cycles, ovulating on day 14, every month, you know, you could get sick or you could be traveling or something could be off one month in your cycle and it can change. So there's a lot of apps with algorithms or even thermometers that have algorithms that use your past cycles to predict when you're fertile. And I'm not a fan of those for that reason, because it doesn't account for the unknown future. (laughs) Yeah, I am. I am totally guilty of doing that. You know, I have my app that I've been, um, I've been charting my cycle for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years on paper for a long time. And then Mm -hmm. I've been using the app for years now. And I, for until like right now, I have been <laughs> looking at it and being like, okay, I'm going to ovulate on the 19th and just trusting that, which is, it's definitely been wrong, you know? Yeah. And you can, you know, I have some, I have a lot of patients who would use that, but they also track their mucus and track their temperatures and they yeah. just, conf- they use the app as like a way to confirm, or they'll use the ovulation predictor kits when they're starting to learn the method as a way to confirm, like, you know, they'll, even if they're not trying to get pregnant, they just use those home urination sticks to confirm, you know, if they are, if they're feeling like they're ovulating at the right time every month. So those can be handy, like, um, confirmatory methods to use, but it shouldn't be the primary. Um, yeah. So the basal body thermometer, you just want to, you know, take your temperature. You can get a really cheap one off Amazon or at Walgreens, um, anywhere you want to shop, I guess. Um, and it's going to say that it's like a basal body thermometer. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, I always recommend getting one that's backlit because if you're taking it in the dark in your room, which I recommend everyone sleep in the pitch black dark, um, it's helpful to have a backlight on the thermometer and that it can record like it records and saves the last temperature reading just in case you don't get out of bed right away and write it down so that, you know, if you forget. Um, and so 
you know, they're usually like 10 or $15 and it's not, it's not a big investment. And you would just want to take it at the same time every day. And you'll kind of play around when you're learning the method to see if you really need to take it at the exact same time every day. Some people are more sensitive than others. So they're te- they'll see bigger fluctuations, you know, within an hour. I know that I don't have to be that specific. I can take it within an hour to, um, you know, um, every morning and it, it, I can still see a clear rise and feel so, like I can read my charts. That includes after you've been moving around because, or not, because what I always see is like, do no. it before you get out of bed. Okay. Yes, exactly. So you need to do it before you get out of bed, before you get out of the covers even. Um, you don't want to do any movement. You don't want to take any sips of water, anything. Um, the rule is that you should have been sleeping for at least four consecutive hours. So, you know, that makes maybe um, this method a little bit challenging if you're a mother with a young kiddo that's getting up many times in the night. Um, but you could also try and see if you're seeing big fluctuations in your temperature. So, you know, I always recommend that women chart their cycles and track their cervical mucus for at least three months before they rely on this method as their sole form of contraception, Mm -hmm. if they're using it for that reason. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's just, you know, there's a lot obviously at stake if, if you're not clear on what you're seeing or reading, you know, in your body. So, you know, I recommend six months. I know for me, it took a long time to trust it. You know, I didn't trust my, myself, you know, I wasn't raised to trust myself. So, you know, I learned this and I was like, really, does this really work? And I was skeptical. And I, I, I probably went full six months of using backup method with condoms, um, a mix of condoms and pull out. And then, you know, it probably wasn't until like, well into like almost a year mark where I fully let go and was like, yeah, this works. And, you know, now it's been seven years and, you know, I trust it so much. So it's, you know, it's going to take a while, you know, depending on, you know, how, how in tune you are with your body and, you know, how much you can lean into that trust of the method. But I definitely recommend three months before using it fully, because what I see a lot, you know, I, I help a lot of women get off hormonal birth control and transition them to using this method in my practice. And the first month they're always like, I have no idea what's going on. You know, it'll be clear to me. I'll look at their charts and I'll be like, Oh, this is a clear temperature rise right here, but it's just unusual. It's unfamiliar territory. So there, there is a, a learning curve in the beginning, but once you learn it, I mean, it's just like brushing your teeth, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's becomes part of your daily routine. It takes no more than an extra five minutes every day to do you know, your temperature takes one minute to take and you're already going to the bathroom. So checking for cervical mucus and writing it down or putting it into an app, you know, really doesn't take very much time. Mm, um, it's I'm just so that empowering. initial. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems so worth it, you know, just to have it's this so knowledge it. of your body. And then, of course, you can use it um, to prevent pregnancy or to optimize your chances of getting pregnant. Exactly. And you're, you're probably yeah. wanting one or the other, you know, exactly. <laughs> probably yeah. not like, and whatever. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, there's so many benefits, you know, it, it is the most empowering thing I've learned for sure. in all of my medical training, I mean, this is my wow. number one thing that I love to teach women. And I feel so grateful that I learned because it's completely changed my life. And you know, I've learned so much about, I, you know, I also struggle with thyroid issues, undoubtedly, you know, from connected in some way to 10 years on the pill. Um, 
but you know, you can tell when your thyroid's not functioning well because your your thyroid is actually also responsible for regulating your temperature. And so your women who have thyroid issues will often see that their temperatures are really low. You know, they're in the 96 range, which you know, ideally you want them to be somewhere mm. in the 97 and then mm. they jump into the 98 after ovulation. And so you can detect thyroid issues, you know, with temperature mm. tracking and, and, you know, you, you can, you can tell if, if you have PCOS potentially, because you can see if you're not ovulating, you know, if you're not after you've been practicing or if you work with somebody, you know, like myself or a fertility awareness educator that can help you interpret your chart, you know, that can confirm if you're ovulating or not you know, if then you can see like, am I not ovulating? And do I need to go get further work up, you know, or go get help and support in this area. And there's just so many things, you know, I, I feel like when you really track even the amount of bleeding that you have, um, you know, you can learn like, am I estrogen dominant? Do I potentially have endometriosis? You know, some women are even surprised to hear that they're not, they shouldn't be in pain, you know, during their period, mm-hmm. you know, that, that it's not normal to have really painful periods. That's actually, it's common, you know, but that's not a sign of a healthy cycle. So, you know, I think a lot of women just suffer through really painful periods thinking that's just par, par for the course. And it's actually, you know, it actually takes 12 years. They've, they've done studies and show it takes 12 years for women to get diagnosed with endometriosis. Oh my God. Yeah. 12 years on average. I mean, it just goes to show like, I don't know, the level of seriousness I feel like women sometimes get or, yeah. you know, when they're speaking to their doctors, it's like, this needs to be addressed. You know, no woman should be going 12 years in pain and suffering without someone helping them. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. The way women's um, health concerns are dismissed by modern medicine is well-documented and really just so horrifying um and you also have written here that your charts can help you figure out whether your infertility is actually just recurrent miscarriage and not just not conceiving yeah um yeah you can tell if you're progesterone deficient so one of the things that i love using this clinically for it's so great to have women's charts you know especially if they have like months of charts that you can look at because you can so clearly see if somebody is estrogen dominant or progesterone deficient and, you know, a common cause of, you know, miscarriage is progesterone deficiency where the woman's not making enough progesterone to sustain a pregnancy and early pregnancy. You know, you need a certain level um, to build a really thick and robust endometrial lining that can then sustain the pregnancy. And so if a woman, you know, have luteal phases, which is the second half of your cycle, shorter than usually like 10 days, you know, is kind of the cutoff. Someone will say 11. Um, That could be a sign that, you know, that you're not making enough progesterone to sustain a pregnancy. And so that's a really another great thing to see, you know, if you're charting, you can see exactly. So you could have, you know, you could have a 32 day cycle and that is considered healthy in length. But if you're not ovulating until day, you know, 22, you know, that is really late. And that means your luteal phase is then only nine days. And that, you know, is not going to be enough to sustain a pregnancy most likely. So that's a really great benefit of, of using this method, because if you take a blood draw and test somebody's progesterone, you know, it can vary up to eight times the amount, depending on when you test it during the day. So it's very, um, 
you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt, you know, it, it, yeah, it's just, you know, there can be an eightfold difference, you know, depending on what time the blood draw is done. You can't like predict when, you know, an optimal or ideal range. It's not like it fluctuates at the same intervals each day. It's just, it's a pulsatile hormone. So it's much more accurate to have charts like this to look at and actually see how many days do I actually have. So your luteal phase starts the day after ovulation. Um, so then you can count, you know, once you know, you've ovulated, you start counting how many luteal days are in your cycle. And then if you know that you have, you know, optimally will be 12 to 14 days. Um, that is like a really good amount of days for a luteal um, phase where, you know, you have enough progesterone, but if you're deficient, then, you know, you can work on correcting that. And, um, and then you also know if you're pregnant right away too, because your luteal phase can't be longer than 16 days so once you get past 16 days and you know you're still having high temperatures and you're not bleeding then you you pretty much can confirm you're pregnant oh neat um wow this is just so cool thank you so much for sharing everything um yeah i just almost feel speechless like i'm so excited to learn all this and (laughs) really wanting to just go deeper into it and feeling like, man, I wish all young women were taught this. Mm -hmm. Me too. What a different experience women would have. I know. I think that it's, you know, things are shifting now and I'm so grateful, you know, that you are having me on your podcast because I know you have such a big um, you know, a great population of women that, you know, really are dedicated to listening to your show. And, um, I feel like, you know, the more that we can get the word out, you know, the more women are starting to know there's so many great Instagram handles that are talking about this, you know, and I think more and more it is becoming apparent. It's just, I think really helping women understand that there is science backed research, you know, showing that it's effective and, you know, just really kind of reassuring women. Cause I think a lot of women are just really scared. You know, they're taught not to trust their own bodies. They're taught, you know, not to trust themselves. <laughs> um, and you know, that is a bigger issue obviously in our culture, but I think things are shifting and I feel optimistic for change. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Elizabeth. This is just absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really such a big, um, I've become such a big fan. I actually found out about your podcast through a mothering group that I go to and I become such a quick fan of yours and just really feel like in this very synergistic way, everything that you talk about and bring to light on your podcast is really getting at the root cause of like, Mm so many issues you know it's really like these buried like the ancestral work and yeah. just really talking about things that are going a little layer deeper than I feel like what I hear a lot of people you know talking about or promoting you know not to say there's anything wrong with it because there's value in all kinds of different diets and whatnot that people can find helpful and useful but I think when it comes to healing you know, I really believe that it goes much deeper than we often look. And, you know, there's a big mental, emotional piece. Um, you know, the 
the community is huge. You know, when I, I mentioned in the beginning about the blue zones, I mean, every person who lived to be 100 in that book had such a big community that was a common denominator amongst right. every population of people. And, you know, when I think about health and what it really truly means to be healthy, community is super high on my list. And, you know, all of the work that you talk about, you know, the ancestral healing and really tapping into, you know, emotional aspects, you know, is so important for really true deep healing. So I just, I really appreciate you bringing to light so many of those topics. Yeah, thank you so much for that reflection. And um, the Blue Zone book, it's studying really long-lived populations. And if I remember correctly, I mean, they just kind of thought they were going to get like um, nutritional pieces and, you know, maybe exercise. Are they walking a lot? And then, yeah, they realize like, oh, it's like it's people, it's relationships. That's really yeah. seems to be like the key factor in longevity. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Really is. <clears throat> Just, yeah. Thank you so, so, so very much for sharing your wisdom with us today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find past episodes, my blog, and our handmade herbal medicines at mythicmedicine.love. We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, mugwort, yarrow, redwood, body oils, an amazing sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, so much more. More than I can list there. Mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, check out my quiz, Which Healing Herb is Your Spirit Medicine? It's fun and lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicinestories. It is so worth your while. There are dozens and dozens of killer rewards there, and I've been told by many folks that it's the best Patreon out there. We've got ebooks, downloadable PDFs, bonus interviews, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning and behind the scenes stuff, and just so much more. The best of it is available at the $2 a month level. Thank you. And please subscribe on whichever app you use. Just click that little subscribe button and review on iTunes. It's so helpful. And if you do that, you just may be featured in a listener spotlight in the future. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue. That's M-A-R-I-E-E. S-I-O-U-X from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. Thank you, Marie. And thanks to you all. I look forward to next time.